Hey, Prairie Pod listeners. I'm Megan Benage, regional ecologist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Dr. Marissa Allering, lead scientist with the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. I'm Sarah Bosick, wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service based out of the Morris Wetland Management District. And I'm Mike Worland. I'm a wildlife biologist with the Minnesota DNR Non-Game Wildlife Program. We're part of the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership, and we're here to help you... Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Discover the prairie. Hey, welcome back to the Prairie Pod. It's season five all season long, and we are so excited that you're here with us. I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Marissa. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Marissa Allering with the Nature Conservancy. I'm the lead scientist in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota, and super excited to be here today. It's really nice to like mix it up this season. We've got different voices. We've got lots of good experts. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, lots of people. We're like halfway through. I can't even believe it. All right, let's jump right in. So pardon the pun, but you know I like a good pun. Today, we are going to bask in the amazingness (laughs) of an emerging prairie partnership between sheep, solar, and hopefully satisfied pollinators. The solar industry is booming in Minnesota, right, Marissa? Yeah, it's phenomenal, the amount of um, growth that's happening um, in that arena right now. And super exciting. It's exciting. It's It's fast, (laughs) which always makes me a little nervous, right? It's fast. But I think Minnesota is leading the way with careful planning and some great innovations that we're going to share with you today. And some of these innovations involve stackable benefits. Everybody knows how I like a good stackable. It's like a Lunchable, but it's a stackable. So we've got improved soil health, water retention and infiltration, habitat for pollinators. We could also get forage for grazers. And of course, low cost energy production. We can stack all of those things together if we do it thoughtfully and with careful planning. Yeah. One of the things that excites me about thinking about solar energy and particularly thinking about pollinator friendly solar is, well, it's the stackable benefits for sure. I'm with you there. Stackables, lunchables, but also that from a climate change perspective, I think you can get both both of the climate change change strategies in there. So you get climate mitigation in terms of renewable energy, offsetting carbon emissions, but also adaptation potential in terms of thinking about pollinators and habitats and putting more habitat for pollinators on the ground. So it's kind of a a win-win in that situation. I know. I like it. If we were talking about wind energy, we could have said it's a wind-wind, but we're talking about solar, so I don't have any fun for you. All right, let's jump right in. Let's introduce our fabulous guests that we have here with us today. I'm so excited that we have so many great experts to talk to us about solar. So we're going to start in the order that you're going to hear these folks talk. Paul, why don't you lead us off and introduce yourself? Hi, Megan. My name is Paul Erdman. I work for the Minnesota Board of Water and Soil Resources. I am a buffer and soil loss specialist, and I also assist with pollinator initiatives such as our habitat-friendly solar program. Perfect. Kelly? 
Why, hello there, Megan. I am so happy to be here today as well. Um, I'm Kelly Anderson, and I work with the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. I've been a grazing specialist there for about 12 years now. And um, I also help the DNR in putting some grazing out on public land. So I, I, I kind of, I wear two hats there with both the Department of Agriculture and the DNR. Um, and I'm also serving as the current chair for the Society for Range Man Management's Targeted Grazing Committee. Uh, so that's, solar grazing is something that we deal with quite a bit there. So glad to be here. Love it, Arlo. Hey, yeah. Hi, everybody. Very, very pleased to be here today. My name is Arlo Christopher Hark. I am a, a solar grazer. I'm a shepherd uh, near Northfield. Uh, my wife and I started Cannon Valley Grazers um, in, like four years ago now. And uh, yeah, very excited to be here and talk about my experience uh, grazing on uh, some solar developments in southern Minnesota. See how we've provided something awesome for you today. See, we brought all these great experts together. We've got scientists. We've got people from the ag community who are land managers and they're managing grazing. We've got, why can I not do this? What, what are your categories? I don't know. I'm trying to get people. See all these great guests that we've got for you today. We've got scientists. We've got land managers and grazers. We also have ag specialists who specialize in grazing. It's going to be a great show. I'm excited. I'm excited to learn. Mark. Yeah, me too. I'm super excited to learn from all of them because there's a lot I don't know about solar energy. So excited to dig in. All right. So before we dig in, let's give our listeners a little bit of an overview of solar energy development in Minnesota, because we just want to make sure we're starting out on an even playing field. So I'm going to start with, you know, what even is a solar array? So just so we're on the same page, when we talk about an array during this podcast, it is not a ray of the sun, although I could understand why you might think that. It's a collection of solar panels that's made up of light-collecting cells that generate power. And so the solar array is the entire power-generating unit. And so in our role as the DNR, we typically comment on utility-scale solar. And when I say utility-scale solar, that means sites that are generating 50 megawatts of power or more. And then, so the way this works is that the array sells power to electric utility companies across Minnesota. And then in order to do that, they need a site permit from the Public Utilities Commission. So that's kind of how it all, all works together. Marissa, tell me how much solar energy is, has been developed in Minnesota and how much is planned. So currently in Minnesota, we have around 262 megawatts of operating utility scale solar. And so that means, as Megan, you were talking about a minute ago, these sort of larger size operations. And we're not talking about the smaller sites like community solar gardens when we're talking about that, these numbers. Um, but in the next two years, by 2024, we're going to increase that amount of solar development potentially by five times. So 1,400 more megawatts of solar energy um, development is planned across Minnesota. And so that's why we really wanted to bring this podcast to you all um, this season, because we think this is a really, it's a newly developing area. There's going to be a lot of it showing up on our landscapes. And so what does that mean for our habitat, especially if we're starting to think about putting pollinator-friendly plantings in these areas? And, and how do these things work and together? we're also expecting that increase to be even more because under our current Minnesota um, plan 
for energy development, we're expected to be 100% clean energy by 2040, which means we could expect a lot more solar coming online. So mm-hmm. it's good to talk about these things now to help you guys think through some of the possibilities, because there are lots of possibilities. So just so it's clear too, and I know this is like one of those common sense kind of things. <laughs> when it was explained to me, I was like, oh yeah, right. One of the questions we get asked all the time is, well, where's all the solar going to go, right? And so it makes sense that a lot of it is going to go across the prairie parts of Minnesota because there aren't as many trees, right? And if you're trying to build an industry around capturing energy from the sun, being in an open landscape is ideal, right? As opposed to being under the canopy of a woods. (laughs) It just makes sense. So that's where most of the solar energy is going to go. A lot of it goes into agricultural fields. Again, not super surprising since agricultural lands make up half of Minnesota's 55 million acres, just over half. And so most of that solar is going to go in those parts of Minnesota. So we're looking at increases in southern Minnesota, northwest Minnesota, southeast and central. Probably northeast, not so much. Yeah. And I would just say it's also when we're thinking about those stackable benefits, it's also really important to think about where they're going because you really get more of those stackable actual benefits from um, from these solar arrays when you're putting them in areas that have already been disturbed. If you put them in areas that are remnant prairie, you don't increase the number of benefits in the same way. Yeah, and that's certainly not something that we would want to see happen either, just because we all know right. this is the prairie pod, and we love prairie, and we need it for its intrinsic inherent values, but we also need it for all of the things that it's doing, right? Cleaning water, allowing us to breathe air, building healthy soils, and it needs to do that connected and undisturbed to be at its maximum potential. So let's jump right into some of these opportunities. Paul, we keep hearing these phrases, habitat-friendly solar, pollinator-friendly solar. Minnesota was the first state, as far as we know, to address pollinator protection in the legislature. Can you describe Minnesota's program, maybe give us a little bit of its history and how it works? What does it mean to be pollinator-friendly solar? Yeah, Megan, you're right. Uh, Like many other conservation programs, Minnesota led the way with our habitat-friendly solar program. In 2016, with bipartisan support, the legislature passed a law that says solar sites can implement practices that provide native vegetation and forage habitat for pollinators, game birds, and songbirds. Owners of these solar sites can claim they provide habitat for pollinators and other wildlife if they meet the standards of the Habitat-Friendly Solar Program, which is administered by my where I work at the Board of Water and Soil Resources. To meet the standards, the owners of the solar sites develop vegetation plans, they submit scorecards, they uh, do project planning, um, and then they construct the sites while they're constructing the sites. Uh, they're planting this pollinator-friendly Uh, prairie vegetation. So on the scorecards, they give points for things such as percentage of native species, uh, cover on the, uh, how much of that cover on the site is native species, how much of the vegetation will be forbs or wildflowers, how much plant diversity is going to be there, are they going to have different plants blooming during different seasons, 
and other habitat components like uh, nesting habitat, clean water sources, and avoiding pesticide use both on and around the site. Bowser and local planners review all of this information, and if a site scores high enough, that is, if a site is planning to implement good practices that will help pollinators and birds, they meet the habitat-friendly solar standard, and they can promote their site as being habitat-friendly. And then in addition to the scorecards, there's the program focuses on collaboration with local governments and other partners by providing technical guidance and support to implement habitat-friendly solar on a local level and something you know all about, Megan, with your work at the DNR. Yeah, so how does the Habitat-Friendly Solar Program intersect with DNR's commercial solar um, siting guidance and the Prairie technical guidance? Yeah, Marissa, the DNR's been a really great partner with us on this program. Uh, they have developed guidance for solar developers on where to put and where not to put solar facilities, something we just uh, discussed a little bit, how to establish native vegetation at these sites and how to maintain them. So more along the lines of how to actually reconstruct the sites and how to go about planting, when you say? Yeah, so on our website, and we'll provide a link here with this podcast, there's a whole slew of guidance documents that basically if you're a solar developer, I'm thinking about making a solar site, but I want to have these stacked benefits, how do I go all about it? And so it's everything starting from the, the planning process to the actual installation to the maintenance afterwards. And we mentioned, you know, DNR and Board of Water and Soil Resources, but I think it's important to mention too that Department of Ag and the Public Utilities Commission and Department of Commerce have all been working together and coordinating as a sub-team on solar to figure out how to put these packages together to make it easy for developers to implement these pollinator-friendly solar standards. And we've also tried to make sure that we're all saying the same thing and it's clear what you need to do and how you need to do it. Isn't that nice? People working together. I like it so much. Yeah, so- it's really it's really been a, a team effort and a lot of smart people uh, trying to, again, provide stacked benefits for uh, renewable energy in Minnesota. Absolutely. So you mentioned this in your overview, but I want to make sure... You know, I had a college professor once who said, if you want somebody to remember something, you need to underline it three times. This is my version of underlining it three times in a podcast by making you repeat it. (laughs) So I want to make sure it's very clear. What are some of the best management practices that are recommended uh, in order to attract pollinators at solar sites? And I know you mentioned some of them, but I want to make sure we say them again so that everybody's clear on it. Yeah, so first off, we want to see uh, a large percentage of the sites actually planted with native uh, pollinator-friendly plants. So we talked about the array areas, um, that those are the big parts of the site, but there's also access areas and places where there's not solar arrays. Uh, there's stormwater detention basins, stormwater infiltration basins, so there's opportunities there to also Uh, put in pollinator-friendly vegetation. Projects also get more points if they have a lot of diversity. So you can meet the standard if you put in 20 different species of 
of forbs of grasses, but you can get more points if you're putting in 29 species of plants or 35 or different species of plants. We want to see that uh, a lot of diversity on these sites. We also give extra points if they have flowers blooming in the spring. So we know spring is a critical time for uh, queen bees coming out from a long winter, uh, ready to start a new cycle of life. So we want to see uh, flowers blooming in the spring, uh, flowers blooming in the summer. You know, that's when the majority of our flowers uh, bloom, and that's usually not an issue. But also critical is the tail end in the fall to provide uh, fall blooming asters and goldenrods and things like that to um, give a little boost to some of these pollinators uh, so they can survive the winter. There's also uh, extra points for milkweed if they have a certain percentage of milkweed, which we know we need the milkweed, the milkweed plants for monarch butterflies. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we're mainly looking at. And if you think about it, this can really be somewhat of a challenge because a lot of our prairie plants are pretty tall. Uh, big blue stem, Indian grass, uh, some of our forbs can be six, seven feet tall. And those plants aren't going to work in the solar array areas because they are going to block the solar arrays. So their their palette is really limited in the short grass prairie species, and we're finding that those work really well. And a lot of these people doing this work are perfecting these species and um, getting the mixes just right, so they can both work for wildlife habitat, but also. Uh, still work for maintenance and things like that when thinking about um, producing solar energy so they're not blocking the solar panels. Yeah, I imagine that's a tricky balance that's had to be weighed. I'm wondering, so you said Minnesota is the first state to kind of enact legislation along these lines and has been kind of pioneering this um, this this field, this arena, I'm wondering how many projects are actually using the scorecard now or how many pollinator friendly projects are out there at this point? Do you know? Yeah, that's a good question, Marissa. Um, we've just recently revised the scorecards in 2020. Uh, we're working on another update in 2022. Uh, it's going well. We have about 50 solar sites throughout Minnesota in the Habitat Friendly Solar Program. That's totaling about 1,200 acres of land that are providing both wildlife habitat and renewable energy. Um, as you mentioned, Marissa, other states um, have contacted us and they've started similar programs. But we know of those 50 sites that there's other sites that are putting in this habitat-friendly solar vegetation and aren't necessarily using our standard or our program. And also we know that some sites are not, that 50 sites, as we talked about, there's tons of sites going in, solar sites going in right now, and we aren't hearing from all of them. So we're always looking to grow the program, make more people aware of it. Um, we want to work with local government units because these are being reviewed by local planners and 
really stressed to them, you know, they're going to protect their groundwater, they're going to protect their surface water, they're going to uh, create wildlife habitats, they're going to mitigate for climate change, not only putting in renewable energy, but these deep-rooted prairie plants uh, really store a lot of carbon. And if you think about it, they're really going to make a lot of benefit uh, last March, we held our second in our second Habitat Friendly Solar Summit, and this really brings in people from all across Minnesota and even other states um, to discuss not only pollinator-friendly vegetation, but grazing, as your other guests are going to talk about, all of the different stacked benefits that these sites can provide. And if people are interested, those presentations are posted on our website, on the Bowser website, and that's included in the, the link to this podcast. Awesome. You mentioned a lot of really great stackables, and I want to make sure to highlight one of them that uh, I think is one that we don't think about as often, and it's about increasing organic matter and water holding capacity of soils and just improving overall soil health. We mentioned earlier that a lot of these sites are going into agricultural land, and they have the option to renew or to be decommissioned. And what decommissioned is, is that they're no longer a solar array site anymore. They now go back into presumably what they were before. And if they're going back into agricultural land, having 20 years or some amount of years in this permanent native vegetation is going to do wonders for building back organic matter and improving soil structure and just making those soils overall healthier. And so I want to make sure that that point's not lost on our listeners because it's a huge deal. And then, of course, if they continue on and they aren't decommissioned, then they still get to provide really excellent pollinator habitat, which is something that we are striving for as we look at these stackables. Yeah, Megan. So especially with the small solar sites, we get the comment now and again, this five acre solar site isn't going to provide habitat for much. But really, if you think about it, uh, the site will be there for 25 years, which there's a standard lease agreement between the landowner and solar provider. And if it's planted with native vegetation, it'll provide more habitat in 25 years than row crop agriculture, turf grass, or gravel wood, which is normally planted at solar sites. And it's all the while going to provide clean, renewable energy. So in addition to the benefits we've already mentioned, um, there's other beneficial insects besides pollinators. Uh, there's raptors that use these sites. Uh, in some cases, these sites can provide habitat for amphibians, reptiles, small mammals, waterfowl, and more. In the next phase of the program, we're really looking to expand these co-benefits. Um, I'm glad you brought up soil health because that is a emerging emerging field and everybody is very aware of um, what we can do to help build our soil back up. Um, so it really goes beyond the birds and the bees. These solar sites can be assets in many ways to the local community and, all, and really to all the residents of Minnesota. And we look forward to continuing to support partners and local governments to help ensure these projects are a success. That's great. I mean, in terms of raising awareness, um, what's what's the first thing a company should do if they're considering doing some um, pollinator-friendly solar habitat plantings with their arrays? 
That's a great question, Marissa. We have a clearinghouse of information, as I said, on our website. The DNR uh, also has quite a bit of information. But really, the first step should be to contact Bowser or the DNR to learn more about the program. Uh, certain counties, uh, Stearns County, has been doing an excellent job. Um, so oftentimes, you can also contact your local planners. Uh, Solar companies are really great at the nuts and bolts of energy production. You know, they know where to put these things, how to maintain them, how to um, get the most energy production out of a site. Um, but we, they also, oftentimes they don't have that expertise in vegetation management. So oftentimes we're recommending them to work with native vegetation companies that have experience in this area. These vegetation companies are becoming experts in this emerging field. Uh, solar developers should keep in mind some maintenance is required for these native plantings to thrive. We all know, listening to the other podcasts, working in prairies, that if we're restoring a prairie, building a new prairie, we can't just seed it and then it's done and it's going to be a prairie for 100 years. Uh, the same thing as this prairie vegetation on solar sites. First three, first, second, and third year are really critical for maintenance to make sure that the uh, prairie plants thrive. And also, these, these sites are limited in what kind of maintenance you can do because the prescribed fire is out of the question. So we know that we like to use prescribed fire to maintain our prairies, to uh, set back the woody vegetation, to deter weeds. Uh, that's not possible because we don't want these solar arrays to go up in flames. So that's out of the question. So often mowing is used and now more and more often grazing is used. And as your other guests are going to talk about today, this is really a growing field and can be a win for the solar companies, but also the grazers and the companies that are maintaining the sites. That's a great segue, Paul. It's like you've done this before. Thank you. Our, in our next section. So to kind of frame, we're going we're gonna to shift to a little bit of the management view. How does grazing factor into these solar sites? But I want to frame that conversation with a comment that we get a lot. And this question is for everybody. So we hear this all the time, right? There's a grazing seed mix and there's a pollinator-friendly seed mix. And they're often talked about like they're these two separate intangible things, right? And that they're two separate goals. We maintain that you can do both, <laughs> that you can absolutely stack these things together. How do you guys see this working? We'll start with Kelly and then go to Arlo. Sheep are a really great animal for helping to maintain solar sites because instead of cattle like that like to eat grasses, sheep really prefer to eat forbs and they get a large part of their diet from eating forbs. And that's what pollinators tend to be is they tend to be broadleaf plants that you know that we call forbs so sheep are going to be a good good fit for that um and when you talk about stacking benefits um and the soil health the potential to have soil health benefits on these sites uh the best way to really ramp that up is to add livestock because you need to have microbes to have a healthy soil and the best way to feed those microbes is to do it through the gut of a room, a ruminating animal. So 
what the sheep are going to do is and in, instead of you know, if you use sheep instead of like a, a mower or you know something that's just going to come and cut the the vegetation the sheep get to process all that vegetation and then put it out the backside and along with that comes all the lovely rumen microbes that are going to help to feed the soil and and build up that soil health and soil fertility so like I said, when stacking, when you talk about stacking benefits, you really need to get some livestock in there to um, to, to make the most of it. Arlo, what do you think? You're a resident grazer. Yeah, I'm all in, all all of it. Yes, <laughs> they they I I can't agree more that sheep are the solution for these for these uh, pollinator systems underneath solar arrays. Um, you know, Kelly mentioned a little bit about cows. They don't work. They're too big. They rub. Goats don't work. They jump up on panels. They're really great for, uh, you know, managing buckthorn and wooded ecosystems, woody ecosystems. Sheep really are kind of the optimal, uh, you know, ruminant for for the for the job. Um, they are, uh, you know, they're low lying. They don't like to jump. They don't chew on wires. And a lot of these traditionally managed systems, um, when you're mowing. You're not actually removing any biomass from these systems, right? Like a really important part of why burns are so effective in prairie ecosystems is because you're actually removing a ton of biomass. You're removing a ton of thatched down grasses, a ton of old forbs, all the woody stuff. Um, you know, the sheep are able to turn that in to kind of a nu nutritious food for the microbes of the soil um, and able to really kind of effectively, you know, from a, uh, like an operations maintenance perspective, really, really effectively uh, manage the vegetation. If you, you know, if you think about, you know, mowers coming through on these sites, you can't mow underneath these panels. If you see how these racking systems are set up, a lot of these, a lot of the times there's big, there's, there's, there's underneath the panels, there's, um, you know, these huge weed systems, you know, systems that aren't, aren't managed and sometimes they get sprayed. Sometimes you have to pay exorbitant amounts to have people come in and string trim. Sheep are able to move freely underneath these panel systems, target all the vegetation uh, uniformly across an entire uh, uh, system. So yes, I'm, I'm a big advocate, as you can imagine, uh, for, this, for this practice. One thing you both said that I just want clarification on, because I think it sparked in my mind, right as you said it, that sheep really like forbs. And so we all know from what Paul just said that pollinators really like forbs. And we certainly know that pollinator-friendly plantings, right, aren't just forbs. Pollinators also need grass. Those are their nesting sites. Those are their homes. They just are often foraging on forbs. Like, like that alliteration? It's nice, foraging on forbs. But if you say to me, sheep really like forbs, and that's why they're really great on these sites, how do I know that those sheep aren't going to be taking too many forbs away from the pollinators? Well, I've got a, I've got a really interesting response to that, and I think that Kelly will agree with what I'm going to say. It's that, And it reminds me a lot about a previous episode of this wonderful podcast that I listened to. Um, yeah, it's the how, not the cow with Mr. Kent Solberg. And um, really, really an important part of this is not just putting sheep on these sites, but really thinking about sheep as a tool to effectively manage for a, a targeted benefit, right? So, you know, when I, when I think about bringing sheep onto a site, you know, if I bring 10 sheep onto a 50 acre site and leave them there for the summer, yeah, of course they're gonna select for the tastiest stuff. But when you're talking about bringing hundreds of sheep onto a small site, for a very short amount of time, you really get to control how they eat, what their behaviors are on these sites.
by controlling the variables in these targeted grazing systems, such as stocking density, such as duration of the graze, we're really able to um, control it, uh, you know, control the practice and, and achieve, uh, uh, you know, a, spe a specific end result. Um, yeah. Yeah, when, when we're talking about grazing these solar sites, it's not about using the site as as a like a, you would a pasture for, for your flock of, of sheep. Yeah, we're talking absolutely. about using those sheep as a tool, and that's what targeted grazing is, and that, that's really, really what we're doing here. Um, so what targeted grazing is, is you're using livestock um, in different ways in order to achieve... Um, uh, some sort of vegetation management goal. Uh, here in Minnesota, we see this a lot of times where people use, um, they'll use goats to control buckthorn. Um, you've probably seen that in some of the parks in the Twin Cities and around southeastern Minnesota. Um, a, lot, a lot of grazers have been bringing in goats. You see it a lot out on the West Coast where they're using sheep and goats and even cattle to do grazing around um, uh, um like like uh, like housing developments in order to pre prevent wildfires from coming from the the the, the wildlands and into the, the housing developments they call it the the wooies or the or the <laughs> the wildland urban interfaces out there uh, it's a huge business out there where they're using sheep to come in and sheep or goats or cattle to come in and take off some of that vegetation and that's the kind of thing I'm t we're thinking about here it's it's a tool and we're applying those sheep as you would any other tool, whether it be fire or mowing or, or haying, we're applying the sheep like a tool. So one of my favorite things, especially when we're talking about using sheep to improve the pollinator friendliness of a site is what we can do is we can actually, you know, Paul was talking earlier about how um, extending the flowering season is a really big thing for pollinators. We can use sheep to do that. So if, if I'm managing a, a, solar site and I'm my job is to take some of the vegetation off of there if I start my sheep on one end and like Arlo said use a huge number of sheep high stocking density so that they don't really have a choice what they eat over there they're going to eat what's there and what they don't eat or what they can't eat uh, what the things that that might be unpalatable to them they'll trample it so I'm going to start on that one end. And what that's going to do is it's going to set the, those plants back maybe a few days, maybe a week, depending on how long I have them there. And then I'm going to move them off. And I'm not going to let them back there again. So that's a, that particular side, uh, you know, that's going to be delayed a little bit and it's flowering. And then I'm just going to slowly move those sheep along along the the development and it's going to progressively delay the flowering of the plants as we go across the development. So what that does is you've got plants now that are staggered in their flowering and in their, you know, their different growth cycles, which, of course, we were talking is great for pollinators because now we have we've extended the growing season. We've extended the flowering season for those pollinators. Kelly, you're talking about heterogeneity. I guess I am, yeah. On the side. I'm just using fancy words, you know, just throw throw out, make us all sound super smart. Heterogeneity. You know, it's too bad there's not a great rhyme for, like, the how, not the sheep. It's too bad about that. How, not the cow just rolls off the tongue a little bit easier. But if you can come up with something like the... I can't. I don't have anything that rhymes with sheep that's appropriate. Yeah, I was just thinking my daughter has a book called Sheep in a Jeep, but I'm not sure that that helps out much. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to work, maybe. That doesn't really, that's not the slogan we're going to use here. 
Uh, so you guys have definitely convinced me that sheep are a really good tool for this um, and why and, and how to actually use them can be a really good pairing for thinking about managing for pollinators as well. But I'm wondering, Arlo, if you can talk about some of the logistics around this, like how did you actually get started grazing sheep and, and how does this work for you all? And, and maybe a little bit about the logistics of like a grazing lease or how you actually operate your sheep and rotate them from site to site or within a site? Yeah. So like I mentioned in my introduction, um, my wife and I started Cannon Valley Grazers four years ago uh, with the intention of uh, not only uh, having kind of a farm business uh, by selling selling meat and wool products, but also we knew that we wanted to have some sort of positive impact on the ecology of, of the Cannon Valley, um, our area near in Rice in Southern Dakota County. Um, and so, you know, initially what that looked like was bringing our sheep uh, into, you know, invasive, into ecosystems that have a lot of invasive species. Um, so, you know, working in, working kind of in more goaty environments, right? Like in those woody, uh, woody shrub systems, um, and kind of eventually then branching out into some different kinds of pollinator and prairie, prairie ecosystems we worked with. Uh, um, uh, we worked with somebody over near Lawnsdale, uh, that had a six acre prairie that was totally overgrown with um, goldenrod, super aggressive. Um, and over the course of a few years, we were able to use our sheep to kind of target that vegetation, that particular species, and kind of try to bring uh, a little bit more biodiversity into kind of the, the ecosystem in that particular site. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, as we were trying to kind of figure out how we were going to build our business, continue to build our business up, I was put in touch with a woman by the name of Lexi Hain. Uh, of, the, of the American Solar Grazing Association. Uh, and she's done a ton of work in the eastern part of the United States to kind of help uh, help uh, shepherds like myself uh, gain access and provide resources for uh, kind of solar grazing, this, this you know, budding new enterprise that a lot of farmers are, um, are using to diversify their income stream, their farm, their farm income. And she's so shepherding exactly the shepherds, right, Arlo? That's right, dude. She, she really is a, she's really a phenomenal leader. Uh, I will, fo- I will continue to follow her leadership wherever it goes. Um, and so, you know, providing a lot of resources, um, and kind of helping network and get us in touch with some of the solar developers in our uh, area in our region. And so kind of over the f- course of the last few years, um, you know, it's it a very slow process of kind of building relationships with these developers and kind of continuing to pitch and repitch. And, and, and a lot of, I've noticed that there's been a lot of hesitation from the solar industry about this. Um, it's a really unfamiliar thing, um, but kind of through, uh, through some really wonderful relationships that I've built and kind of through the, how the narrative is shipped has, is shifting and continues to change um, around solar grazing in the country, we've, we've actually developed a ton of interest um, and a lot of developers are really eager to work with us. So that's a little bit about how we got started. Um, as far as logistics, uh, you know, we're set up in a way right now where, where we are moving our sheep from site to site. We're trying to do high intensive, high, excuse me, we're trying to do high intensity, short duration grazes. And so the idea is that we're going to be, you know, over the next couple of years, as we, as we continue to build our flock, we're hoping to, when, at, when we're working on community solar gardens, bring 200 sheep or so to a site, um, 150 to 200 sheep, 
and leave them there for maybe three to four days, depending on kind of what the vegetation looks like, and then move them along to the next site. So really, really super fast durations where they graze very intensely and then move along to the next site. So kind of like how Kelly was talking about, um, you know, on larger sites, how you can subdivide these, these uh, you know, developments into different paddocks and move your sheep through. We really think about our portfolio of solar gardens kind of over the core, over, over a, you know, a hundred and a hundred mile radius, thinking about each of those as little paddocks, right? And so you might not have, a, you know, as you think about how you want to stagger bloom times, you're really, I'm, I really been thinking about it on a macro scale where, you know, it might not be on site that you have, uh, you know, a staggered bloom times, but when you look at the, when you look at an, an 80 acre portfolio, you you can you can see at which sites which sites will be blooming when and what species will be blooming. So in order to get there, I'm assuming you need some type of grazing lease or agreement. Kelly, tell me a little bit about how do we make grazing at these sites possible? What are the what's the basic recipe of what we need? And I don't mean the recipe of grazing because we all know that there is no one recipe there's no one size fits all if we're being adaptive i mean the recipe in order to actually make this a possibility to have uh, right i swear the more the more i learn about grazing the more i realize i don't know and it's really a lot more of an art than a science but when it comes to putting together a lease now we're talking about legal stuff and there's pretty good checklist of things that need to be included in that. And the first thing is, is to just look at what is this solar company asking the grazer to do? Now, as I mentioned before, there's some some things that, that sheep might not eat. You know, they, they like their forbs and they like a few grasses here and there to balance it out. But there might be some plants in that pollinator planting that, that sheep aren't going to eat. And the first thing to, to consider is, will the grazer be responsible for that vegetation that the sheep aren't eating? So um, that would be considered like a comprehensive uh, contract. You're, the, the grazer is in charge of taking care of the vegetation no matter how it gets done. The, the um, solar developer would say, hey, we need this all cut to a certain level. Do it figure out a way to get it done, whether you use the, the animals or use some other mechanical means. Um, a limited contract would be something where the grazer is only in charge of, of the grazing. So, so that contract is going to be based on what the animals are going to eat. So it'll say, you know, they need to come in, they need to graze it off, and then we'll just take care of whatever's left. And that might be individual plants that the animal isn't going to consume or it might be areas that the that the animals can't access you know there might be some some parts of these solar sites that you just don't want the animals in there so so in a limited contract somebody else is going to be in charge of those in a comprehensive contract that's going to be the responsibility of the grazer no matter how it gets done so and then of course we get into all the different things that that need to be considered when you're getting into any kind of contract. The big one would be indemnification and liability. Like who's going to be who's at who's going to be uh, the one who gets in trouble when the sheep get out or if the sheep get out. <laughs> um, what happens then or what happens if a sheep gets into a bind and, and God forbid dies while they're out there? Who's in charge of that? You know, all those things need to be written into, into the contract. Um, who's allowed on the site? When can they be there? Things like that. Um, and uh, Arlo had mentioned Lexi Hain and, and the American Solar Grazing Association. They have been a huge resource and they've 
and they've done a really good job putting together some of these sample contracts that go through that list of all those things that a potential grazer or a solar developer should should consider. So instead of me trying to sit here and regurgitate everything and just say, <laughs> I'm just going to say, take a look at the resources that they have on their site, um, because it's a really good start. Um, and I know a lot of people have used those contracts as well. Oh, that's super helpful. One, a point of clarification for me, if folks are writing into these contracts, things like we want the vegetation, you know, uh, graze to a certain height, you know, at a certain time or, or whatever have you, it would be really important to make sure that they're including refugia on an individual site in order for it to still be pollinator friendly. And I totally appreciate what you're saying, Arlo, when you're like, I'm looking at a landscape, I'm looking at all of these sites and how they're working together and how they're connected because that's ecology. Like that's what ecologists do. But from an agency perspective, in order for us to make sure that something's working and that that individual site that's permitted is meeting its pollinator-friendly solar standards, there'd have to be some refugia on that site with flowering forbs so that we're making sure that we've got some habitat always for those pollinators. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think that's especially critical on the larger sites. You know, I think when you start thinking about sites that are, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40, 400 acres, you know, that that's definitely a really important part of things. And I think that it's a, there. there's also def- definitely ways to create that sort of, um, the, those sorts of spaces where they're, you know, they're, the sheep are limited. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, limited from accessing. And I, and I think that, you know, one of the things about sheep, though, that is interesting and, you know, is that I think that po- pollinators can coexist with these livestock, right? You know, like they're like you, you go around the sheep and you, you can you can see that there it's kind of like a gentle wash comparatively, you know, compared to a mowing or things like that. It, it, it feels um yeah, the, the, you know, there's, there's a lot more opportunity for kind of pollinators, uh, pollinator insects to kind of coexist in these spaces uh, versus when you're burning or when you're mowing these types of things. Um, and I would say that's also true of non-pollinator habitat as well. I was at one of the sites that we were at this year, had a neighboring site, um, and I happened to be there while it was being mowed, and there was bunny rabbits running everywhere, and there was this and that and the other thing, and, I, and you know, insects, birds flying up out of ground nesting, you know, you know, it's just so, it, there's definitely a lot of, uh, you know, I think that when, when you're thinking about kind of refugia, as you say, uh, the sheep, I, do, I think the sheep do a really good job of kind of uh, building that in you know, on, on a smaller scale, they, they, they're less intensive of a management practice. And so there's more ability for those, uh, you know, those benefits and those, those, um, I'm not saying it right, but you guys understand what I'm trying to say. Those stackables. Those <laughs> stackables. That's together. right. Stackables. Yeah. Prairie evolved with grazing and fire. We know that. I really like your gentle wash um, analogy, though. I was like, oh, gentle wash. Yeah, I can get that. It's like a, a slight breeze versus a tornado. So I'm wondering, Arlo, what um, what products you're able to market from your sheep? Great question. Well, sheep are great. They're they're super um, utilitarian. Uh, we run a we, we have a breed called Rambouillet. Um, and the reason I'm telling you guys about this is because Rambouillets were developed in Spain, I believe. Um, I'm going to fact check myself right there right now. That's but fancy. The point, I know. Um, the, the, <laughs> the point is that they, they were developed um, for their fleece. 
so they've got a, a really, really fine fleece. And so you, so right now my wife is in the process of developing a, a value added wool garments company um, that we're going to be launching this year. Um, we are also, we're also selling um, meat to our local co- to our local co-op uh, lamb products. We've got all different kinds of things. Um, and, uh, to our local co-op and also direct to consumers. Um, and, but really I have to say that the, the, the solar grazing is, um, really the, the keystone of our operation in a lot of ways. It's, you know, the, when, when we're thinking about how we make our money and what, um, you know, what, what, what those different kind of income streams look like. Uh, for us, the, the, the operation wouldn't be possible without solar grazing and, and the, the, the um, the operation is really built around that targeted grazing model, right? We don't have a land base. We don't own land. Um, so there's, uh, you know, I think that, you know, they're really, it's really a trifecta of kind of how, how our business operates. There's two things I want to say there. So in a way, it's, it might be, I don't want to say easier because nothing's easy, right? When it comes to managing habitat, nothing's ever easy. But it might be an opportunity for new farmers to come on the scene because some of the limiting factors are usually owning land or having access to land. And so this might be a way to expand opportunities for new and beginning farmers because there's a land-based opportunity there and some agreements to be made and you don't actually have to be the landowner. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. And I think that part of what that means, it's it's really important that we're, you know, as people in this industry we're really doing a good job of, of uh, doing that outreach and education, right? Like this, this is not just like throwing sheep on a, you know, on a pasture. This is, this is actually requires skill. And it's important that, that the people that are coming into this industry are well equipped with the tools and the resources to be effective in their vegetation management. And, and um, so I absolutely agree. Huge potential for young, uh, you know, new and beginning farmers. And I am one of these one of these people that has that has been able to build a business, uh, you know, with this with this company, uh, you know, with with targeted vegetation management on solar sites. Um, and yeah, I think there's I think it'd be great. We should keep keep bringing on people. There's going to be more than enough land for everybody that wants to graze to graze. Um, if I could add to that. Um, I, I would just like to reiterate a lot of the things that Arlo just said, like, yes, this can be an excellent way for a beginning farmer to get started without having the huge overhead of having to purchase land. That's one of the, one, that's one of the biggest things keeping people from getting into farming today. But this model does allow for the opportunity for somebody to start in with some livestock and do that on land and actually get paid for doing the grazing. It's very important that when people are doing this, um, providing this service that they are not doing it for free. It takes a lot of labor and a lot of knowledge. And I would just caution anybody that's thinking about this and, oh, free grazing, this will be great, wonderful. I can get paid to bring my sheep around. It's not for everybody. And I, uh, Arlo is kind of understating the vast amount of knowledge that he and his wife have about um, ecology and all, all of that knowledge that goes into this. You definitely need to have an understanding of plants and plant science and soils and, and all of that in order to be effective at this. Um, and that that's something that I, I really caution as people are trying to get into this, that um, 
be careful and don't just go at it because you think it's going to be free grazing because there's a lot of work involved and a lot of knowledge that come that goes into the planning of it. I, uh, I absolutely agree. I have one thought, one thing that that makes me think of is uh, just some of the wonderful partnerships we've been able to develop with um, some of the people that, some of the companies that are doing the installs on these sites. Two things I want to know real quick. Is a Ramboulet sheep, is their fleece as white as... Whiter. Is it? It's, it's the okay. whitest. It's whiter, it's whiter than white. It's so white. So pure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's that's one thing. And then two, what's the best thing about being a sheep herder? For me, that's my question. I I yeah. I love my connection with the land. I feel so so lucky to have um, a job where I get to get to be working with livestock to have an impact on on the land and the ecology of this state. Yeah, and I also really love my relationship with the sheep. I'm I really they're really sweet, and I know that's kind of cheesy. Uh, and a lot of big time farmers would probably laugh at me, which is totally cool if, any, if anybody's listening to me. But um, yeah, I really love my sheep. Well said. We like ecology too. All right, now it's time to move to our next section. Let's science to the literature. Science. All right, this is the part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And we've already mentioned these as we've been going through the podcast, but we want to hit them really quick so that way you guys have all of the information. Of course, we'll put these up on our website. Kelly, what is your pick for the day? My pick for uh, my favorite piece of literature around this topic is the Targeted Grazing Handbook. This was put together by the American Sheep Industry back in 2006, and it's a really great overview of what it takes to be a targeted grazer. And it really gets into the science of how to target different plants and different landscapes and, and how to apply targeted grazing for different objectives. Uh, right now, they're working on the second version of this handbook. And I guarantee there will be some pieces in there on solar grazing because this uh, industry has really blossomed right along with the solar industry in the past uh, five or six years. So you will definitely have some articles about uh, solar grazing in the next version, which is to come out probably in the next year or so. Great. Thanks. Paul, what's on your list? Marissa, my let science pick is, as I discussed during the podcast here, on our website, we have our Minnesota Habitat Friendly Solar Program webpage, and everything that you want to know about uh, the program and more is listed on there. It lists all of the sites that are in the program. When you're driving by, you can say, oh, there's one of the sites that are in the Habitat-Friendly Solar Program. It's going to have the presentations from our two Habitat-Friendly Solar Summits, uh, all kinds of steps for meeting the requirements, question and answers, and all kinds of guidance from Bowser, the DNR, and others all about uh, Habitat-Friendly Solar. Perfect. Arlo, what's your pick? Well, I love this um, this study that was done by the American Solar Grazing Association in conjunction with Cornell University um, with the Atkinson Center for a Sustainable Future. It's all about solar grazing. I think it's a great spot for people that are interested in solar grazing to start. A um, ton of research into kind of what goes into it, how to do it effectively, and um, yeah, just like a great, great, a great starting, great starting point for people that are want to learn more. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Marissa. 
I think we should take a hike. I like that you said we. It's nice that we get to take a hike together. I like that. Prairie people sticking together. So this is the part of the podcast that's probably my favorite. Shouldn't have favorites, but I really enjoy talking about where we can go explore prairie. And I love hearing what prairie places are special to you. Kelly, let's start with you. What's your, where are we hiking today? Oh boy. Well, if I, if I, if, if I'm going to go see the prairie, I'm probably going to do it on horseback. See, I uh, came to own horses late in life. So I'm basically reliving my childhood from horseback um, because I didn't get to as a child. Uh, so uh, I love to go. I love the places that are close to me that I can just take off after work, take my horse out and just go enjoy the prairie. And for pure prairie goodness, I absolutely love Glacial Lake State Park. It's not far from me. It's beautiful rolling hills, some nice prairie potholes, just a really nice open scenery, nice to ride through. But Every once in a while, I like to uh, have a little bit of forest in my life. Um, and on those days, I'll go to, over to the Runestone County Park. It's west of Alexandria, north of Kensington. And it's just got some beautiful trails for riding, hiking, biking, whatever. Um, and there's some, um, there are some, uh, uh, some restored prairies there. But then there's also some beautiful uh, wooded sites with lovely maple trees that just turn a brilliant orange in the, in the fall time that I... I just love to ride through. So those are mine. <laughs> that sounds great. I've never been to Runestone, so I might have to go check that out. Um, Paul, where do you like to hike? You know, I like lots of prairies. I live in Bloomington, though, and I'm walking distance from Highland Park in the west part of Bloomington. And so I like to go walking over there. And if you go to the Richardson Nature Center and go north, uh, just a little ways through the woods, there's a, I wouldn't say a large prairie, but it's a decent sized prairie and just love to do that loop. And uh, I found blue eyed grass out there, lots of blazing star, gentian in the fall. And it's just a nice little reprieve from, you know, you can sit out there and not know that you're in the middle of the metro. And so it's just a nice little getaway. A nice little prairie escape. I like it. Every patch of prairie matters at this point. So small prairie, big prairie. We like prairie, period. Arlo, what's your pick? Yeah, I love I, – so I live in Northfield, um, and there's a lot of really great places that have beautiful prairie around here. But I think one of my favorite lately has been a place called Kester Prairie uh, right by Denison. It's a wilderness um, – excuse me, a wildlife management area. Um, in Rice County, that's a, it's sweet. It's not, it's not humongous, but it is, uh, there's a lot of space, a lot of good space to run. I love bringing my dog Frazy out there and playing ball with her. She loves, she loves it out there too. I love it. Man, I can't believe we're done. These episodes just fly right by and I still have so many questions I want to ask all of you, but that's it. Thanks so much for being here. Next week, we're getting our feet wet, just a little bit wet, because we're talking about Minnesota's shallow lakes coming in at depths under 15 feet. These permanent and sometimes semi-permanent water bodies are a critical habitat component for Minnesota's wildlife. We're going to be joined by John Lindstrom with Ducks Unlimited, Nikki Hansel-Welch with the DNR Shallow Lakes Program, and Scott McIntoon, Area Fisheries Supervisor with the DNR. We're going to discover these important habitats and the role they play across the prairie landscape. Now listen, we take our shallow lake seriously. Remember, don't tell a joke to a frozen lake. It might crack up.
I was just pausing there so that our listeners could laugh and not miss the next part of what I'm going to (laughs) say. So for all of the links and resources that we talked about today, you can find those on the web at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by the fabulous Dan Ryder and engineered by the fantastic Jed Beecher. Man, what should we say? I still don't have something for like how how not the sheep to say bye to you guys. Sheep in a Jeep. <laughs> That's all I got. Sheep in a Jeep. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. And if you see a sheep in a Jeep, we want to know about it. Thank you. Bye, Thanks Megan. for having us. This was fun. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much.